This is They Create Worlds, episode 191, Sega and CSK, part two. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host Alex. Hello. Once again, we return to you to assail you with tales of Sega, because we know you like that stuff or something. (laughs) But first, you have to be regaled once more with two important facts. One, we are now down to nine episodes until the 200th episode. So I need you to tell me what you love about us, why you hate us, or maybe why you're indifferent about us. I don't know. Just share your favorite memories, your favorite stories. Your favorite, here's how I found these guys talking into my ear holes on this date, and it made me fall asleep. (laughs) I don't know, but send them to feedback at theycreateworlds.com. We will sort through them and try to use them in the episode. Secondly, we are going to Atlanta, or at least I am. Uh, Yeah, I'm already here. He's already there. I'm going to Atlanta. We have Atlanta at home. Hey, I get to sleep on his couch or something. It's great. (laughs) We're going to Atlanta. We're going to be doing a panel on the seventh guest. We may or may not be doing other things. We don't know yet. We're just poking them and saying, hi, do you like us or something? So if you're in the area or you're going to Dragon Con anyway and feel like wasting your time listening to us talk for a little bit. But I mean, heck, you're listening to us talk now. So you get to see it live and get stickers as a result. That's right. It won't be a podcast episode. It'll be a presentation. Uh, We hope it'll be as informative as our podcast episodes. But by the nature of the venue, it cannot be as rambly as our podcast episodes. But it should be a good time nonetheless. Even if we're not doing any other things in terms of panel-y stuff there, I will be manning various information desks around the con as part of my regular volunteering. So you can always come up and say, hi, where's the bathroom? And I got gotcha. you. And if you see me walking around and, and go, hi, I want a sticker, please. I'll just give you a sticker because I'll probably just have them in a backpack or something. Absolutely. Dragon Con is a big swag con, so uh, we will have some of our own swag as well. It only makes sense. Okay, but that's not why you really want to hear us talking to you, especially future people. I'm so sorry, future people. This is all in the past now. You missed out. I'm sorry. But we will regale you with tales of CSK and Sega. We started with CSK. We learned a little bit about them. The wonderful glory days. Then they bought Sega, and they left them alone, and things got even better. But I have this suspicion, this thought that they might be forced into doing things leading to doom and destruction and despair and eventual selling. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't say they were necessarily forced into doing things. There were certainly some bad decisions made, but there were also decisions made that weren't done from a perspective of desperation, but were actually done from a perspective of being incredibly bold. That's something that we have already established with the owner of CSK. He's made bold decisions before, and they really, really paid off. Absolutely. And to understand the final days of Sega in the hardware business, the console hardware business, 
we really have to examine it through the lens of CSK, through the lens of Okawa, through the lens of his personality, his boldness, and his vision for the future. Because there are two things that have set Okawa apart through this entire period that we've covered, the entire creation and expansion and dominance of CSK Corporation, which is that Okawa always has a keen eye for what he feels will be next. He's always looking for what the next big thing is going to be. He never wants his business to become stuck in a rut just because he is the largest or one of the largest, if not the largest, information service companies in Japan. He doesn't want to rest on those laurels because he knows that business could go away tomorrow or five years from now or 20 years from now. He's always looking for that next big thing on the horizon that he can move his company into and keep it vital. And he is always willing to make bold moves to get there. In the early days of the ownership of Sega from when he bought it for around a decade after that into the mid-90s, he was doing these things, but the focus wasn't on Sega. He had some hope that perhaps Sega could help him penetrate the consumer computing market in some way. Not necessarily just traditional computing, but consoles are, at the end of the day, computers too. Get involved in a mass market computing kind of situation. He also had backups where if that didn't happen, well, at least he could take the company public, at least he could make some money, at least he could recoup his investment and then move on. I think in the beginning, from what I've seen from the few sources that we have on this, Okawa himself having passed away while he was in charge of Sega, which we've talked about before, of course, has never really spoke retrospectively on the Sega experience, to my knowledge, even in Japanese sources, because he died when that was still his present. But from what I gather from other people that were there, I get the sense that part of the reason that he did leave Sega alone in the early days is because it never quite accomplished what he hoped it would in Japan. Of course, they launched the SC3000 computer, they launched the SG1000 game system, they launched the Mark II, they launched the Master System, or Mark III, first in Japan, then the Master System, then the Mega Drive, known as the Genesis in the United States. They were never successful in Japan, and that was his frame of reference. That's the market that he understood, and he was not as dialed in to what was going on in the West. In fact, according to Hideki Sato, there was a period of time where Okawa was not allowed to travel to the U.S., that there was a travel ban. Now, I don't have any additional details on that. I don't know if Sato is completely accurate on that or what the story is, but according to Sato, he couldn't even go to the United States for a time. And according to Sato, it was after that travel ban was lifted and he was finally able to go over there. This was the same period of time, early 90s, when the Genesis was starting to do really well over there. And according to Sato, this was the turning point. You know, we talked a lot about the recollections in our previous episode of the CFO of Sega, Shinichi Nakamura who also remembers the focus shifting in the early 90s, with Okawa becoming far more interested in the company. From what Sato remembers, it really seems that the catalyst for that shift was that he was able to go to America, he was able to engage with America, and he was able to see what a big deal Sega was becoming abroad. They may not have been as successful as he had hoped in Japan, 
But the company was building a worldwide image and a worldwide success and was becoming a worldwide hit with consumers. Very popular in the United States, very popular in the United Kingdom, very popular in other parts of Europe. This may have been the point that he started to realize that he could leverage Sega in the way that he had originally hoped to which was to get in on that ground floor, get in at what he referred to as the base of the computing pyramid, that broad base of personal computing customers, and move on to those bold futures that he saw, which, as we talked about last time, he saw at this period of time some of the big areas coming up being AI, databases, and networks and networking. It may be at this time that he was starting to see that Sega was building enough of a base that he could leverage that base to move his company forward into particularly networking. So we talked in the last episode how in the early 90s, Okawa started really taking pride in the Sega aspect of his business, that when he would exchange business cards, he would often exchange business cards that did not say president, CEO, whatever, of CSK Corporation. They would say chairman, Sega Enterprises. It was in this mid-90s period that he started actually paying attention to what was going on at the company more. I think gradually, not all at once, but it was clear that this is where Okawa's interests were going to start to lie. Now, of course, right in this exact same period, mid-90s, where he's starting to shift his focus, where he's seeing a future for CSK Corporation's larger ambitions within that Sega subsidiary. I mean, it's, this point, it's a public company, so it's not strictly a subsidiary, but CSK is still the largest stockholder. They own over 20% of the stock is the exact same period that Sega runs into a number of very serious financial difficulties. Now, we have a whole episode that's dedicated to that, the Dreams of Sega episode. And while this episode is going to retread some of that ground, or rather reinterpret, I think is a better way to put it, some of that ground, reaching new conclusions based on new sources, we don't have to slavishly recreate every part of that episode. So if you want the details on what was really going wrong at the end of the Mega Drive Genesis period and through the Saturn period, do refer to that episode, because that had far more to do with Nakayama's ambitions than Okawa's ambitions, because at this point, Okawa is still not focused there. It was Nakayama's ambition to make Sega the Disney of Japan, or the new Disney. He was the one that was pushing them into the bigger, bolder, ride-like games, the amusement parks, and all of this other stuff, because that was his business. He's the one that came out of consoles. He wasn't concerned about this whole networking thing like Okawa was. We will certainly see the same story, but from the different perspective of Okawa. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So those problems that were developing... The fact that they had spent too much money on marketing in the U.S. and Europe, that poor exchange rates, a too strong yen, was really hurting them in currency exchanges, the fact that there was a recession in Europe that was beating them down hard. These kinds of things we don't need to talk about again. We don't need to talk about the design of the Saturn or the failures in the execution on the Saturn project. But these things are percolating in this time. And I think as these things continue to percolate, 
Okawa is starting to shift more and more of his attention to Sega. He is the chairman of the company. He has been the chairman ever since 1984 when uh, he bought it. He's always had the right to intervene. He just hasn't until this point. But now things are getting very dire, and there's some real disagreements beginning to form over how to proceed after this Saturn debacle. And those disagreements really center, as we talked about some in our Dreams of Sega episode, but we're going to recontextualize them here, really center on the differing personalities that are involved now, primarily Mr. Okawa, who is in the information services business and feels far more strongly that information and communication and networking are the wave of the future, which, spoiler alert, uh, he's not entirely wrong about that, (laughs) and really feels that the focus should be in that area. Then you have Hiyao Nakayama, who came up in the coin-op business and who has always understood that business better than any other aspect of Sega's business, but also has very much committed himself to the console business of the company and believes very strongly in Sega as a console powerhouse. He is the one that drove those executives in the United States and Europe to build market share through whatever means necessary. He is the one that told them money is no obstacle and gave them free reign to spend in a way that had long-term ramifications for the company, but which in the short term was very important to them building that market share. Then you have Shuichiro Irimajiri, who we talked about in our Sega episode, the so-called Prince of Honda who had come in and was now executive vice president and was at some point in here after Tom Kalinske left in 1996, put in charge of the North American branch. He was definitely more aligned in a lot of ways with Nakayama, but he brought with it a lot of different perspectives as well in terms of how to develop markets and how to sell products and being very concerned about the sales side of the business as well, and not just the technology side of the business. And then, of course, you had Hideke Sato, the managing director in charge of technology, the person who had designed all of the companies or who had led the design, led the department that designed, to be more accurate about it, not always in the trenches himself, that was responsible for developing all of that console hardware and had very definite ideas about how to go about building a console system. These four personalities would really clash at the top of the company and lead to a lot of infighting that would really slow things down and really cause that final generation of systems at Sega, the Sega Dreamcast, to ultimately fail. The story of the Dreamcast, which we're not here to tell the whole story of it, but we do need to tell some of that story because it is so crucial to the CSK-Sega relationship that we're talking about in this episode. The story of the Dreamcast really starts in 1996, when Okawa and his people really start to try to figure out their plan to bounce back from what is already clearly a disastrous Saturn situation, even less than two years after launch at the end of 1994. There's a lot of disagreement on how to go about creating this system. Iri Majuri, the executive vice president, feels really strongly that the company needs to look to America for its next generation. The hot technology in gaming is coming out of America at this time. 
he feels they need to collaborate with American companies to get this done. Hideki Sato, of course, believes very strongly that the strong relationships that he has built with Japanese companies is particularly important to the well-being going forward. Okawa is not necessarily very engaged in that fight, but Okawa feels very strongly that this is the moment that Sega has to get into the networking business, and that CSK, in the wider sense, needs to get involved in the networking business. It is pretty clear to him that the whole mainframe institutional computing thing is not going to be able to sustain CSK Corporation. By this time, they're not just a staffing company. They also build custom hardware and software solutions for companies. But the whole industry is becoming more commoditized. This idea that the Japanese held on to a lot longer than American companies did, that you're going to have a company build you this custom special snowflake setup just for you, is really going away as the technology becomes more standardized, comes down in price, and as there's a shift from institutional computing on big mainframes to personal computing and networks of personal computers in the office, there's going to be a lot more emphasis on just buying and licensing existing stuff. And yeah, you may still need someone that comes in and fits all of these pieces together for you and helps you make them play nice. And yeah, you'll occasionally want something customized just for you. But there's going to be a lot more just buying stuff off the shelf, going directly to companies that make things and working directly with them if you need a custom build. This middleman of the information services company like CSK is going away, or at least is going to have a much diminished role, and he will not be able to continue growing his empire through this method. So networks are really the future. He believes so strongly that networking people together and having them do things together online, share experiences, etc., is going to be the future. And he sees Sega as the perfect vehicle to move in that direction by bringing video gaming truly online. Nakayama, who at this point is still in charge of the company, adamantly, adamantly disagrees with this approach. He feels Sega is a console company. That's what they do. They build consoles for people to play in the home on their couch. Can we experiment some with some networking stuff on the side, online games? Well, of course we can. We're a game company. That fits into the wider picture of what Sega does. But it is not who we are. It is not our DNA. We build consoles. This is a bad idea. So you have friction coming all around here. You have the chairman of the company and the president of the company arguing strenuously against each other about a networking future versus a no networking future. Then you have the executive vice president of the company and the managing director of technology of the company arguing vehemently over how you build this console in terms of which business partners you use, which vendors you use. It creates this really ugly situation that I think compounds Okawa's frustrations and causes him to insert himself more and more into what is going on. So you'll see a company that had stable leadership forever 
Hayao Nakayama joined the company in 1979. He was one of two executive vice presidents along with an American cohort at that time, and then in 1982 became president outright, and has been in charge of the company ever since, and has been basically the person running everything, at times with an iron fist. And we're now going to see a lot of turmoil as these disagreements bring Okawa further into the company. Now, even though Okawa has a kind of good idea here that it might be good to get into networking, there are problems with this approach. The first problem is a simple matter of cost. Adding a modem to the system is going to make it more expensive. It's another piece of equipment going into that console. That's obvious. The problem with that is that the public, whether that public be Japanese, American, British, French, whatever, the public has a conception in their head of the value of a game console. That perception of game console value is not going to shift just because they include a modem in it. In one sense, Nakayama is right. Sega is a console company. They make consoles, and they have created an expectation in the marketplace about what a console is and what the value of that thing is. It's pretty clear to the number crunchers at Sega that they will not be able to sell a console for more than $200. $199, but you know, it's really $200 because of that strange psychological effect where we humans tend to round down instead of rounding up, and so we don't think of $199 being $200. That's why so many prices end in $99, because humans tend to have this blind spot on perceiving that as actually being a higher price. I don't know about you, but I always round up. Every time I see that, I just go, oh, what's the next highest number? $200, $5, Yes, that's the smart way to do it, but that's not what a lot of human beings do, and it's it's psychological. It doesn't make people, quote-unquote, stupid. It's just, it's part of how our brains work, and companies exploit it, and that's why everything tends to end in a 9 or a 99, for that reason. Heaven forbid you do even more crazy things, which is having it be 397.5 at the gas pump. I think that just confuses people. <laughs> it confuses me. <laughs> How do I pay seven-tenths of a penny? Hmm. Yeah. They feel that they will not be able to sell the Dreamcast for more than $199, or the equivalent in other currencies in other nations. However, it seems certain that including a modem within this new system, the system that will become the Dreamcast, is going to push the cost of manufacturing the system so high that they will actually take a loss on each console sold if they sell at $199. Now, for a long time by this point, the video game business has been a razors and razor blades business. You give away the razor so that they buy the blade. Something that was understood from the very early consoles, but was really, really only put in practice by Nintendo. I mean, yes, the earlier companies like Atari were also in a razor and razor blades business in the sense that since they sold way more cartridges and cartridges were cheap, they derived most of their income from cartridges. In that sense, they were in a razor, razor blades business. But they weren't in the first part of that business. They weren't in the giveaway part. 
they tended to maintain high margins on their hardware, too, even though they made more of their money in software. It was really Nintendo, as we talked about in one of our Famicom episodes, that first went to stores and said, guys, you're going to have to take a really, really tight margin on the hardware, but don't worry, because we're going to sell so much software you won't care. Spoiler alert, they were right. The console business has been a razor and razor blades business for a long time at this point, but you gave away the razors to sell the blades. You didn't give $5 to the gentleman to take your razor to sell the blades. There is a difference between selling hardware at cost or at razor thin, (laughs) pun intended, margins, and selling hardware at a loss. That's what Sega was going to be looking at if they put a modem in every system. They were going to have to sell the Dreamcast at a loss because they couldn't raise the price because of the established value proposition of a console. So the only choice was to sell at a loss. The other problem that they had was kind of a bigger picture problem, but probably even more serious. At this period of time, when they were looking at launching the console, they're doing this planning in 1996, but, you know, they're looking to launch in 1998. Broadband penetration will not be great enough for them to reasonably include a broadband modem in their console. The modem they include is going to have to be dial-up. Other console companies, they are deliberately at this time avoiding an investment in online because they know that when they start launching their next series of consoles, it's going to be too soon that you can't do broadband. And everyone is of the opinion that you really need broadband to be able to deliver an online game experience, which that doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out either. Obviously, there were some games that people played over dial-up. There are games you and I played over dial-up, but we're talking about next-generation, polygon-driven games that are going to be shipping, in some cases, not in Sega's case, but in some cases on DVDs that can hold gigs of content. We're talking about very advanced games with very advanced effects and lots and lots of assets. Those kind of games, it was just not going to be reasonable to provide an online experience over dial-up. It was going to have to be broadband, but broadband is not going to be ready when consoles like the Dreamcast or even the PlayStation 2 are going to launch. So Sony, Nintendo, they're not looking into doing online seriously at this point because it's kind of absurd in a way. This is the Okawa thing again. When everyone told Isao Okawa he was nuts to raise his prices for his human resources, for his engineering services, and to hire 500 engineers a year in the midst of a recession, he said, I'm going to do this because this is my opportunity. And if nobody else is doing this, then that just leaves a big hole for me. Things are going to grow. The computer sector is going to grow. And I will be the only one placed to take advantage of this. I think there's a little bit of that same kind of chutzpah and that same big picture thinking that's going on in Okawa's mind here. Okay, conventional wisdom says dial-up is too slow, that dial-up is too soon, that we can't do online gaming, modem-based gaming network stuff quite yet, not for another, you know, five years or whatever. Well, since everyone else is shying away from it, I'm going to double down on it, and I'm going to start building that infrastructure right now. That way, when the world is ready for it, I will already be established. 
I will already have a console that is optimized for handling online gameplay. Will the dial-up portion of it have to be replaced in some way? Yeah, probably. It'll probably go to broadband, but the thing is I will have the head start, and I will have the system that can already do this stuff. And so when everyone else starts coming around looking for network opportunities and growing their network space, I'll already be there, and I'll be the expert, and I'll be the one that everyone turns to. So Okawa's insistent that they do the modem. Nakayama is fighting hard on this, and this is probably the beginning of the end of Hayao Nakayama at the company. Because Okawa has decided, and they are going to go in his direction. There are a few things that ultimately end up bringing about Nakayama's downfall, and we did not talk about all of them in our Dreams of Sega episodes, so it's, it's a good idea to talk about that here. We talked about the failed Bandai merger, and we took that as one of the big things that caused him to have to step down. The merger failed in 97. He didn't step down until early 98. I think the Bandai merger probably hurt and was part of it. If you want more information on the failed Sega Bandai merger, I encourage you to check out that Dreams of Sega episode. We won't go into more detail on it here. But there's actually a bigger issue, one I was not aware of, and one I now have from several different Japanese sources. This is an even more important reason, and we do need to talk about the downfall of Nakayama, because I think as long as Nakayama was at the company, Okawa was never going to be able to exert full control over the situation. Yes, he was chairman of the company. Yes, CSK was the largest stockholder, but Nakayama had been there a long time. Even though he was not the founder of Sega, he was basically the creator of the modern Sega in a very real way. His influence there was deep, much, much deeper than Okawa's was. In many ways, it was Nakayama's company. So as long as Nakayama's there, it's probably going to be hard for Okawa to exert his control, but Nakayama does some things that hurt him in this period and ultimately causes downfall. I think one of them is disagreeing on the modem and fighting with Okawa on this, because that's starting to create the friction. That's not something that's going to get him removed, but it's something that's starting to sour Okawa on Nakayama, because Okawa has a clear view of the future, and Nakayama is clearly not on the same vision quest here. The second thing was the Bandai merger. They really needed that merger. They were hurting financially. They needed to come together with another company where they could each leverage their own strengths and have a more solid capital base in order to launch that Dreamcast and that online future. Of course, that merger fails in spectacular fashion, dramatic fashion. But the third and even more important thing is there were actually big financial shenanigans going on at Sega. Now, I cannot speak to these in great depth because, A, it's complicated financial stuff that I don't have a lot of deep sources on, and so it can be hard to contextualize that accurately. And B, I'm getting this from Nakamura and Sato, interviews that were originally in Japanese and that I am relying heavily on machine translation. Machine translation is wonderful for getting the big picture, but you can never assume that every last nuance of what you're getting out of machine translation is correct. That kind of AI has come a long way, but it's not perfect yet. However, we can talk in very general terms about what happened in this period. So I mentioned, of course, that Nakayama had pushed the American and European branches of the company, Tom Kalinske and American, Frank Herman at Sega Europe, to spend whatever they needed to, to take market share and dominate and win in the console space. Money was no object. 
Part of how they were paying for all of this, particularly on the manufacturing side, is my understanding, is that the subsidiaries actually used the parent company's money to buy what they needed in order to put consoles out. I don't know if marketing costs were involved in this as well, or if it was just manufacturing. Like I said, I don't have the strict details, so I want to be careful here. But I know, at least in large part, the operations of these two subsidiaries, Sega of America and Sega Europe, were funded by loans from the parent company. Like, the parent company wasn't just saying, here's your budget. The parent company was saying, here's a loan to accomplish your objectives. At the parent company, at Sega Enterprises Limited, those loans were being booked as assets. You know, that's what a loan is. A promissory note or a loan or or whatever is considered an asset. That part's fine. You can do that. However, at the time, it was not required in Japan that if you were a company with foreign subsidiaries, it was not required that you do your accounting on a consolidated basis. You could do your accounting on a non-consolidated basis instead. Now, what does that mean exactly? So it can get quite complex, but at its base level, it's very simple. When you practice consolidated accounting, it means that when you are reporting out your revenues and expenses, you are treating all of the subsidiaries as if they are a part of the same entity as the parent company. So all the revenue from the parent company and all of the subsidiaries are on the same balance sheet, all the assets, all the expenses, all on the same balance sheet. So what Sega Enterprises Limited is spending is on the same balance sheet as what Sega of America is spending is on the same balance sheet as what Sega Europe is spending. When Sega Enterprises Limited is reporting out, because it is a public company, is reporting out those figures, it's representing the figures from all parts of the business. They might also break them down separately if they choose to, just to show people what's going on. But the accounting is being done as if it's all one entity. And this isn't just the figures they release to the public. This is also the internal figures. This is them keeping track as well. On a non-consolidated basis, what this means is that the parent company's balance sheet is separate from all the subsidiaries' balance sheets. So Sega of America's and Sega Europe's assets and expenses are not being tracked as part of the same pool as the parent company's expenses. Now, some of you with way more financial wherewithal than I have may have already now spotted the problem here. Sega Enterprises Limited is lending money, tens of millions of yen, 35 million at its peak to America, 20 million to Europe is lending this money and listing it as an asset. But at the American and European subsidiaries, these loans were, of course, debt, not assets. If the company had been keeping track of its financials on a consolidated basis, as in all of the assets and expenses of all of the companies, all the subsidiaries, were all on the same balance sheet— those numbers would zero out. Just to pull around a number, you have a 10 million yen loan to Sega of America that is an asset of Sega Enterprises Limited. Then you have a $10 million receivable or debt on the Sega America side. 
so those two ten millions cancel out to be zero revenue. Well, they're not reporting the debt at Sega of America. They're only reporting the asset that is the loan on the Sega Enterprises side. So that makes the financial picture look rosier than it actually is. In effect, they generated a whole bunch of money they didn't have. Yes, uh, and they did it legally. There was nothing illegal. There was nothing improper about what they were doing. But at this period of time, the American and European branches ran pretty darn independently. We've talked about this before, how Kalinsky felt that he had complete independence to do anything, and then later he felt really constrained. And Frank Herman didn't give that many interviews before he passed away, but basically the same thing on his side is that they had wide freedoms. There wasn't a lot of communication between the Japanese main headquarters and the Americans. Obviously, Nakayama's keeping an eye on things on a high level, but it's not like the CFO, for instance, of Sega Enterprises Limited is having regular consultations with the branch offices. They really don't have a good idea of what's going on, especially since they're not consolidating financials. Well, then, right at this time where they're starting to have all those problems, they decide that they need to start consolidating their financials, and when they do... That's when they realize, oh shit, we've been having backups of inventory, inventory problems in our overseas branches for a long time, and we've lent them all of this money that we've been booking as revenue, and it's not revenue because our subsidiaries still owe us this money, and this is bad. That's part of the reason why Sega starts suddenly posting such horrific losses is because they had been doing it all wrong. It's not just the fact that they spent all of that money doing advertisement fighting Nintendo. It's the fact that they had poor bookkeeping practices and the people higher up were making decisions on wrong data. Exactly. And this is from both Nakamura, the CFO, who is literally in charge of this stuff, and Sato, both of them in their retrospectives mentioned this. This is good, solid information. This definitely happened. The indication from both Nakamura and Sato is that this is what actually causes Nakayama's dismissal. Yeah, the Bandai thing was kind of awkward and probably didn't help, but this financial thing, when Okawa found out this was going on, oh, he was not happy. So look at it this way. If you have someone you're having difficulties with anyway, then they come to you with, oh, yeah, we were doing all the books wrong and all of our finances are screwed up. Okay, why are you even in charge? (laughs) What are your core tenets as being in charge of this subsidiary company thing is to make sure that the money coming in matches the money coming out at the very basic (laughs) level here. You have to make sure your accountants are doing their jobs. Yeah. Not doing that, we're going to say, okay, I love you, bye-bye. Yeah, this was a giant problem. And so Nakayama's dismissed in early 1998. He remains as vice chairman. He doesn't completely leave the company. He stays on as vice chairman for another year or so till 1999. But he's removed from a direct role of power. The executive vice president, Shuichiro Yamajiri, the prince of Honda, is given the opportunity to carry things forward from here. But unlike in the past... The big difference this time around is that Okawa, as the chairman, is going to really start exerting control because he has come to see Sega, as near as I can tell, as the real future for his entire suite of businesses. 
He's not entrusting everything to Sega. He even founds another networking subsidiary of CSK called ESAL, which is focused on more internet networking stuff as another part of CSK. He doesn't have quite all of his eggs in the Sega basket, but he is really at this point highly, highly focused on Sega as the company that is going to deliver his future vision of being in the networking business. So he is not going to let another CEO screw things up like Nakayama did. Nakayama botched the Bandai merger. Nakayama botched the finances. He is never again going to put himself in a situation where a CEO of this, not subsidiary anymore since they're public, but of this affiliated company of CSK can ever cause problems again. So even though Irimajiri takes over the Nakayama role, he never has the Nakayama level of influence. At this point, a lot of the most important decisions are being made by Okawa, and basically all of the most important decisions have to be run by Okawa. Irimajiri has very little latitude to make decisions himself, which is a great contrast to the majority of the Nakayama years. Of course, it's in that context that we have the great final fight between Iri Majiri and Sato on the design of the Dreamcast. We talked about that in our Dreams of Sega episode. We don't have to go into great detail again here, but basically there were two different designs. Iri Majiri felt strongly that they needed to look to America to create their next console, that internal R&D had never been very successful because the Mark III slash Master System, the Mega Drive, the Saturn, none of them had succeeded in Japan, and only one of them succeeded around the world. It's time to look at the exciting stuff coming out of America to do our next thing, and so he made sure, even before he was president, when he was still an executive VP and head of Sega of America, he used his influence to make sure that they would have a team going in the United States. They partnered with IBM and 3DFX. Sato, meanwhile, is doing his own R&D. Everyone knew this was going on. Some sources portray this as like a secret thing, but everyone knew this was going on. But I think it was Sato was going and doing his normal thing, and Iri Majiri was kind of whispering in people's ears that we need to do a change. And so as a way of not having to confront this in a serious way up front, they basically just said, well, we've got time. Let's just commission two designs, and we'll let you both do your thing, and then we'll see at the end. We recounted the final meeting in our Dreams of Sega episode, where it's Okawa, the chairman, Nakayama, who at this point is vice chairman, he's in the room, Iri Majiri, the president, and Sato, the uh, head of technology, as well as a few other people from sales and development, all in a room, they have to make the final decision. Sato argues very strongly that they need to keep going with their reliable Japanese partners that they'd been partnering with, you know, on the Saturn as well, and other systems, Hitachi for the processor, NEC for the GPU, and Yamaha for sound system. Iri Majiri is very adamant that they go with this IBM 3DFX power PC kind of thing instead. He claims that this will be a better system. Sato claims that they're all obsessed with cutting costs more than they are delivering a quality product, and that we have our proven Japanese partners that we know can work well under constraints, and they'll deliver something that is both high quality and reasonably priced, and we can have it all if we just go with my guys. Okawa is the one that gets to make the final decision, which just goes to show that as chairman, he's taking such a big role now. Even though Iri Majiri, the president of the company, 
and CEO, the highest ranking executive position managing the day-to-day of the company, even though he says we need to go with the Americans, he doesn't get to make that call. Okawa gets to make that call. As we recount in that other episode, Okawa said, we are going to go with Sato because, yes, Sato has failed. Yes, Sato's last system, the Saturn, had problems, but he has learned from this. He has grown from this, and he will not fail us again. Surprise, he failed us again. He did, yes, though a lot of that wasn't really his fault necessarily. (laughs) But yes, they go with Sato. Iri Majiri is just incredulous. He's the president of the company and he can't even greenlight, or CEO of the company, and he can't even greenlight the product that they're going to make next. He's stuck with living with the decision. It'll be Sato's job to bring the system to market, to complete the system technically, and it'll be Iri Majiri's job to bring the system to market. As we talked about in the Dreams of Sega episode, they have a problem. The conflict over the two systems has actually created an issue. It has thrown off the timeline for everything by several months. The graphics chip that NEC is developing ends up being more complex to work with than they had hoped. New chips are always difficult to work with. You always have lower yields, but in this case, it was particularly bad to deal with, and they were having particularly low yields, and they were going to only be able to have one-third of the chips available at the projected launch in late 1998. Once again, a decision had to be reached. Okawa, who is very adamant that he's got a lot riding on the streamcast, he's very adamant that this thing works for them. He wonders if they should delay the launch. If they don't have enough systems that they can start to build their install base as they need to, should we wait a few months until we do? Iri Majiri says, absolutely not. Sony is coming. The PlayStation 2 is coming. People are salivating over the thought of a new PlayStation already. Yes, it's unfortunate that we don't have the inventory that we wanted to build our install base right this moment. But if we wait to launch even a few months, it gives Sony that much more time to start hyping their forthcoming PlayStation 2. It gives them that much more time to buy Mindshare, and it brings us that much closer to a PlayStation 2 launch whenever that's going to be. We can't afford that. We have to establish ourselves in the marketplace now, even if we don't have the inventory we had hoped for. Okawa says, okay. He says it reluctantly, but he says, okay, if that's your call, you're our guy in charge of marketing and selling this thing. We'll go with your say-so. So they launch, and it's a disappointing launch. It's a combination of not enough supply, but also not a lot of compelling games. So the launch is a flop. So this time, Iri Mashiri gets his way, but I have a feeling that it was this. I don't know this 100%, but I have a feeling it was this conflict right here that ended Iri Majiri's career at Sega, because he does step down to take responsibility for the low sales of the Dreamcast. That is kind of a common concept in Japanese business culture, that when something goes wrong, somebody takes responsibility and falls on their sword for it. I think the reason why Iri Majiri had to fall on his sword is he was the one that really drove them to launch it in late 1998 before they were ready. He basically staked his entire reputation on the line of launching at that moment. It did not work out, and Okawa demanded his resignation. At this point, Okawa 
himself chooses to run the company directly as CEO. He has no plans whatsoever to be the CEO of the company long term. Obviously, he dies, so he's not CEO of the company long term. But even outside of that, he was never planning to take it over for long. He felt that at this point, he needed to guide the company through this transition period, find someone he could trust to take over as CEO long term, and then have them bring the company forward. Because at this point, the staff has been decimated. I mean, Nakayama and Iramajiri, of course, have both been axed in a very short period of time, but other people below them have quit out of frustration over these various power struggles that are going on as well. So there's not a deep bench at Sega. Remember, at this point, this is Okawa's great hope. I know I've said this a million times, I'm a broken record, but it really is the theme of this episode. Sega was Okawa's great hope at this point. He could not risk it all falling apart now, so he decided that he would take it over on a temporary basis, just while things are sorted out. He takes over in June of 2000. Get the company on its feet, get another CEO in place, and then step to the side again. Because his goals for the Dreamcast, even as the Dreamcasts have gotten into more and more trouble, have gotten bigger and bigger. We actually need to back up a little bit again, not too far, just a year or so, to 1999, April. The Dreamcast has launched in Japan. The Dreamcast is not launched in the United States yet. Of course, it launches $99.99 for $199, that big marketing campaign. Okawa is still hoping that the Dreamcast is going to be this thing that creates a networking business for Sega and for CSK. Sell enough of these things with the modems and get a network situation building. Then a friend of his tells him in April 1999 that he needs to think even bigger. That friend is an individual by the name of Brad Huang a Chinese-born economist who has been a financial advisor to Okawa since 1994. Huang is a fairly young guy at this point. He's about 34 years old. He showed aptitude as a child for math and physics, entered college at the age of 15, and then was hand-selected along with many others when China decided they didn't have enough economists as they were trying to evolve their economy beyond Marxism. They decided they needed a new base of economists. He was one of multiple people that were hand-picked to go to school in the United States and learn a thing or two about economics. So he earned an MA from Georgetown University, an MBA from Yale University, became an investment banker with Goldman Sachs, then eventually founded his own private equity firm, China Capital Partners. China Capital Partners had close ties with Nomura Securities. Okawa had close ties with Nomura Securities, which had helped him go public. I'm imagining that that's kind of how they intersected, though I don't know that for certain. I just know that in 1994, they did intersect. At this point, Sega is in really bad shape. They've been laying off staff. The Japanese launch of the Dreamcast has not gone well. They're realizing all the horrible accounting problems that they had across their business. Okawa is, I think, starting to get worried that everything is falling apart for his Dreamcast plan. His dreams of Dreamcast are beginning to fall apart. Obviously, the Western launches still haven't happened yet. 
The Sega brand is strong in the West. There's a hope that that will revive their fortunes. But things are looking kind of grim, and he's seeing this whole vision of the future evaporating. Huang tells him to think even bigger. Create a true network ecosystem based around the Dreamcast. To hear him tell it, he was the one that suggested that every Dreamcast should have a modem in it. But the timing doesn't work out because this meeting was supposed to have taken place in April 1999 and the Dreamcast already launched in Japan in late 1998. All I can think of, it could be incorrect. It could always be incorrect. But the only thing I could think of is maybe they were starting to hedge and thought that for the American launch, they would have to leave the modem out for price reasons. It could be that Huang fortified him in leaving the modem in for the North American launch. Or it could just be bad info. Who knows which. But there's no doubt that Huang became a big cheerleader and pushed them to create a full online ecosystem around the Dreamcast and its modem. Okawa thought this was a good idea and hired some consultants to execute on this plan. But according to Huang again, Around September 1999, when he saw these plans, he was horrified because all it was was spending $10 million on a website where people could buy games and review games. It had nothing to do with actual online game playing. That is not at all what Huang had been envisioning. He didn't really want to join Sega to do this, even though he gave Okawa the idea, but he was so outraged by what people were doing with the idea that he decided that he had to take matters into his own hands. So he calls Okawa, he says this is terrible, and he set a meeting with him. They meet in the U.S., Huang's based in the U.S., Okawa comes over to the U.S. On his way over to meet, at least this is how he tells the story, this is one of those stories that feels like it's staged, too good to be true, that it didn't really happen this way, but we'll tell the story because Huang told it to Business Week. While riding in Okawa's limo to the Sega America offices, Huang saw an ad for a free compact PC in a newspaper, free in quotes, because you had to sign up for like other services in order to get that free computer. That gave him an idea. Why don't we give away the Dreamcast to individuals who agree to sign a contract to be members of the Sega network? Not something that exists yet, but is going to exist. Sega.com, to be exact. Create a new internet company. Sega.com, this is the height of the dot-com boom, where people can communicate online and play games with each other and all of this stuff. Make it a subscription service with an ISP. It's an ISP as well, so you you can use it as your way of surfing the internet and everything play games, surf the internet, communicate with people, all of this stuff. Set up the service that you have to pay $22 a month. Then give people who agree to sign up for the service for the period of one year a $200 rebate on a Dreamcast, which is literally giving away the system. Because in his mind, the important thing is building the network infrastructure. The hardware doesn't matter. We're locking them into the service. I'm sure part of the logic is that if we're forcing them to pay for a year of this $22 a month service, that the signups to the service, many of which would have not necessarily signed up for the service otherwise, are going to offset the cost of the rebate and keep the whole thing practical, in theory. But the idea is build that install base, 
get another 1 million, 2 million, 3 million consoles out there in the world that wouldn't otherwise be out there in the world because you're giving them away for free, even though you're also forcing people to pay for something that's even more expensive to get that free console. But again, with the way people work sometimes, it's amazing what people will pay for free stuff sometimes, Jeffrey, is all I'm saying. Well, if you want to send us more money by supporting us on (laughs) Patreon.com, They Create Worlds will be happy to send you a sticker if you just let me know. (laughs) There you go. And actually, I lied a second ago because I said it was for people who sign up for a year of the service. They actually had to sign up for two years of the service to get this rebate. Okawa's like, okay, let's do that. So he brings Huang in, and they start the service in uh, April of 2000, so after the Dreamcast launch in the United States. They start formulating these ideas before the launch of the U.S., but it comes to fruition afterwards, with Huang as the CEO of the new Sega.com. Okawa also starts pursuing other things in this time period. He starts negotiating with telecoms in France and Germany to try to get them to take on Dreamcast technology. He starts to market the Dreamcast technology as the heart of a network system instead of a console itself. He says that we can optimize the Dreamcast basic hardware on a single chip or a couple of chips and market this as an embedded system that you can use in your telecommunications or networking product and join part of this whole big Sega network. He really wants to create his own gigantic worldwide network. There's some real confusion from this time period and some real confusion about Okawa. Because during the same period of time, right after the Dreamcast launching in America, and especially after he takes over Sega in 2000, he makes some public comments about Sega's future maybe being in software and Sega's future maybe not being in hardware. These comments were interpreted by the Western press and have been interpreted by other people since then as saying that Okawa didn't like the hardware business, didn't like Sega's hardware business. He came from the information services industry. He came from a software-focused business. He wasn't comfortable with hardware. He'd rather not be in hardware. So this transition that happens then a couple of years later, where Sega discontinues the Dreamcast and does become a traditional third-party publisher, is all about Okawa not liking hardware, Okawa not being comfortable with hardware, Okawa wanting Sega to no longer be in hardware. That's actually not what the play was. Okawa's play was not, and you know this is according to several of these sources, Sato said this, Nakamura said this, Some news reporting at the time has said this. Okawa, it wasn't a hardware-software dichotomy for him. It wasn't, I want to make games, I don't want to make game consoles. It was, the future of everything is networking and communications. The future of the whole technology sector, information services sector, is networking and communications. I want Sega to be my vehicle to get us there. I am using Dreamcast and the Dreamcast technology as my vehicle. I'm going to try to get as many Dreamcasts into the market as possible, even if I have to literally give them away. I'm going to try to convince other network companies, other telecom companies, to embed Dreamcast hardware in their own systems. And I'm going to push this Sega.com. I'm going to push this entire idea of Sega in networking. The Dreamcast hardware is integral to my vision. He really feels strongly about the Dreamcast hardware. He does not want to end the Dreamcast hardware at all. But he sees a future that wants 
Sega has completed this bold charge into networking, and once CSK Corporation, the parent, has completed this bold charge into networking, he sees a future where CSK and Sega are these networking or internet companies and are no longer necessarily in the hardware business. I mean, I think he's seeing nothing less than a Google or an Amazon or something like that. I mean, he's not trying to get there in the same way. I'm not saying he was going to suddenly go into online retailing or suddenly go into search engines or something like that. But he was trying to reimagine Sega almost as a dot-com company. He wasn't trying to just throw away the hardware and start making video games. You know, start making only the video games as a third-party publisher. That's not an Okawa play, but that's how it's been characterized because of how things played out, because his grand schemes failed and he died. So the vision was kind of lost. Like the people in Sega and in CSK knew what the vision was, but the idea of the vision amongst the press, amongst amateur historians, amongst enthusiasts, amongst whoever else got lost. But that's what the play was. And that play may have meant Sega getting out of hardware. Because Okawa did make comments about how in the future Sega may only be a software company. But when he said Sega may only be a software company, he was not thinking video games. He was thinking of something so much bigger and so much more powerful. That's that Okawa gamble, that Okawa roll of the dice, that Okawa see the future, embrace the future, take risks to get to the future. And that's what he saw happening with Sega, if that makes sense. Yeah, I can see that. This is him continuing on with what he's got going on because it's working, sort of, kind of. But he wants to use it to leverage into a larger thing of where he sees the future is. He made that kind of play before where he saw computers are going to get really big. Computers are going to be a big thing. I need to hire people in order to help facilitate that. He's trying to lay the same kind of groundwork here. Absolutely. And in fact, after he became president, he did everything within his power to protect the Dreamcast. Many within the company, by the time he took over in 2000, June 2000, by which point it was very clear that the U.S. was not going to be the savior that the company needed. Many within the company, both in Japan and the United States and elsewhere, were insisting that it was time to end Sega's hardware development. They were taking too many losses. They were losing money on all the consoles they sold. They were not selling through enough. Sony was coming, was going to crush them. It was time to get out. Okawa actually refused to entertain this. And not only did he refuse to entertain this, but he appointed Hideki Sato as his primary vice president. Sato, of course, was the creator of the Dreamcast, was a strong believer in the future of the Dreamcast, and most definitely did not want Sega to get out of the hardware business. So that just shows you right there what he's thinking in terms of the Dreamcast. By elevating Sato to a higher position in the company, he is saying, we are not getting out of the Dreamcast business. This is still incredibly important to my plans for the company. He also does another thing. He starts setting up even for more of a future than that by hiring in two special advisors in October 2000. One of those is Toshimichi Oyama, who was 
the president of Isao Corporation. So you may recall a few minutes ago, I mentioned that in addition to his Sega thrust into networks, he had also had another company created called Isao Corporation that was focusing on more traditional internet-based networking stuff. So he made Oyama a special advisor to Sega at this point, the president of Isao, which shows you that he's still got this networking thing on his mind. He also hires as a special advisor the person whom he believes is going to be this future of the company. That is one Tetsu Kayama. Tetsu Kayama worked for a company called Recruit, which was a, as the name implies, it was kind of a recruiting company. In fact, even though the company name Recruits may not be well known for you if you're not from Japan, Recruit is a big deal all around the world because Recruit is actually the owner of the job service website Indeed. They are a big player in the staffing industry. So what does that have to do with the future of video games, you may ask? I mean, that's an excellent question. But Recruit has its fingers in many different pies, and they actually have a subsidiary company called Media Factory. Media Factory is a manga publisher that is also the main company that works with the Pokemon company and Nintendo to market and distribute all of the Pokemon merchandising, the card game, the anime, the manga. All this peripheral stuff. And Tetsukayama was the head of Media Factory. So he had great experience working with a video game company because he worked closely with Nintendo. And he was involved in all sorts of other areas of content and media as well. For Okawa, this seemed like the perfect guy to take over Sega and take it to the next level as this network company and this major content force. So he's bringing Oyama in as an advisor to kind of be on the networking side of things. And he's bringing Kayama in as an advisor, I think more on the video game media side of things. And it's Kayama whom he ultimately plans to take over the company. By this time, he also knows that he is most likely dying. Because right at the same time, just about the same time he took over Sega, he discovered that he had esophageal cancer. So he has to move kind of quickly to get all of this in place. He had not planned for Kayama to take over the company right away. There was meant to be a more of a transition period where he stayed at the company another year or so, leading the company, and then handed over power to Kayama, though it was clear that that would have to be accelerated. He also made plans to secure Sega's future. Because the other side of this is that Okawa was very honorable towards Sega in all of this. He knew he was taking big risks. He knew he was having Sega swing for the fences. He knew that Sega might fail in enacting this big networking dream that was going to cost them a lot of money. Even as they were rolling out these plans, he told people at the company, we need to take this risk, but if it doesn't work, I will make it right. He even funded some of this with his own money. He started up Sega.com with his own personal finances to start with, because he knew this was his dream, and he never planned to leave Sega in a bad spot. Even before things went bad, he was telling people, if this goes bad, I will take care of it. So he started making formal plans to donate his shares of Sega 
his personal shares of Sega, to the company upon his death. That had a value in the hundreds of millions of dollars, which then they could resell on the market and take care of all of the debts that they had accumulated in this crazy quest of his. It was also during this time that it became very clear that Dreamcast was an albatross that was going to drag the entire company down. They were selling it at a loss. They were giving it away. They never had the install base. Sony was going to clean their clocks. It didn't think as much as it thought it was. Yeah, right. So it was also clear that they would have to discontinue the Dreamcast. Kayama began a restructuring of the company. This is the period of time where they spun out all of their developers as subsidiaries and gave them more independence to make their own content. Kayama and others basically said, we have to end the Dreamcast. Okawa was still against this. It is a myth that Okawa wanted to get out of hardware. We've explained that it's a myth that has a kernel of truth to it. He was not wedded to hardware. He was wedded to a networking future. But he did not want to get out of the hardware. He did not want to get out of Dreamcast. But in the end, they persuaded him. While he was in the hospital, very weak, Kayama's basically running the company at this point, not him. He finally agrees that they have to. It can't be helped, he says, and gives the okay from essentially his deathbed to discontinue the Dreamcast. So Kayama continues this restructuring plan and looks towards a future in the software business that is going to be aided by the financial windfall that Okawa gives him. But it's not really a windfall at the end of the day, because really, as as I kind of said, it was Okawa making the situation right. It was him saying, I took a big risk. I gambled with your company. I was trying to bring us all to a place that would be incredible for all of us and more amazing for all of us. I couldn't do it. But it's not your fault. It's mine. So here's the money you need to survive this transition. He was apparently a very kind man. I mean, he gave to many charitable causes. He was involved in a lot of youth charities in the United States and Japan. Tom Kalinske had nothing but incredible things to say about what a great man he was. I mean, he was a philanthropist. He was a gentleman. He was a visionary. And when his vision didn't work out, He owned up to it, and he did not let the company take the fall for what ended up being his hubris. That's pretty cool at the end of the day when you think about it. It really is. It shows that he is ambitious, but does so in a structured way that he accounts for, if this doesn't work out, I'm going to make sure that my risk is accounted for and the company can survive to do risk again. I really wonder if he did the same kind of thing when he heavily invested during the recession with his own company, trying to hire on a whole bunch of people, if he had some sort of contingency plan there is like, hey, if this doesn't work, then this will take care of the company. Yeah, no idea. I mean, he was much earlier in his career then, so I don't know if he would have had the resources to, but it does make you wonder, because he certainly showed that loyalty and he saved Sega. He also almost destroyed Sega. It was his mad drive for this networking thing that caused a lot of the financial difficulties. Hey, at least he's left Sega where he found it. Yes. And so uh, he died on March 16th, 2001, and the Dreamcast was officially discontinued March 31st, 2001. The plan that was worked out while Okawa was still alive, Okawa's own succession plan, 
is that Hideki Sato would take over as CEO of the company for a period of about three months. And then at the general shareholders meeting, power would be officially passed along to Kayama. However, this really wasn't Okawa's decision anymore. It was the decision of the new powers that be at CSK, because of course Okawa's death also meant that there was a changeover at CSK. There was a new chairman at CSK, Yoshihara Fukushima, and there was a new president at CSK, Masahiro Ozono. Fukushima was also named the new chairman of Sega, succeeding Okawa in that position. Sato was taking over as president, Fukushima was taking over as chairman. Eozono also joined the Sega board as a director. CSK still owns over 20% of the stock of the company. CSK is still the most influential organization in Sega's lives, and it's now under new ownership, and this new ownership is financially focused, not technologically focused. Fukushima and Eozono both came from Nomura Securities. I had mentioned that in the context of Huang a second ago, when CSK went public, which, as we may recall, they were the first information services company to do so, so it was very challenging. He relied very heavily on allies within Nomura Securities to make that happen. Fukushima and Aozono were part of that, and then afterwards, he brought both of them into CSK. As is shown also with his relationship with Huang, it's very clear that he valued people that had a good, solid economic background and economic foundation as well. So these are money men. They're not information services men. They're not technology men. They have some different ideas from Okawa in a lot of areas. We're going to get to some of those other areas in a second, but in the short term, there's a big disagreement by Fukushima about Kayama. I don't know the full details of this. I only know what Nakamura says, but basically what Nakamura says is right before the general shareholders meeting, Fukushima suddenly speaks up and says, I don't think we should be making Kayama the head of the company. I have heard that he had real problems getting along with Nintendo when he was at Media Factory. I don't think he's the kind of person that has the character to run our company. I'm sure there was way more going on behind the scenes than that, but that's all we know. So Kayama is allowed to become chief operating officer, COO, but he does not become president. Hideki Sato remains in the presidency that was supposed to be temporary. The other thing that is going on is that CSK is going to be shifting in a completely different direction because Fukushima and Aozono are not information services people. As I said, they're financial people. They feel way more comfortable in the financial sector than they do in the computer sector. I'm sure they saw the same things that Okawa did, probably even talked about it with Okawa, that their core information services business was probably not going to continue to be the great source of revenue it is right now down the road, that they were going to need to pivot. But these men aren't comfortable pivoting into software or pivoting into computer networks. They want to pivot the company into the financial direction more being financial advisors, providing a different kind of information service in the financial sector. They don't want to be in technology, so they do not want to be in Sega anymore. They want Sega gone. It doesn't align with the new direction they want to take CSK. 
Some of the things they want to do is build financial advice systems. They want to build tech support systems like call centers, that kind of thing. They're just not comfortable in these big technological leaps that Okawa was in. They want to go in a different direction, like call centers and financial advising. There'll still be some technology component to that because they'll set up some technology in call centers. They'll set up some technology in financial advice. They'll set up some technology in other areas for businesses as well. But it's really not about the technology anymore. It's really about running financial and call center style businesses that Fukushima and Aozona are more comfortable with because their background is different from Okawa's. So they want Sega gone. They have the perfect candidate to make Sega get gone, which is Sammy Industries, run by Hajime Satomi. Sammy is in the pachinko business and slots business primarily. They have done video games and other coin-operated games in the past, and even had a home game division as well, but they're really primarily in the pachinko business. Okawa and Satomi were friends. Okawa was somewhat of a mentor to Satomi at times. At one point when Sammy was in financial trouble, Okawa had helped bail Satomi out. Satomi and Sammy kind of owed them a solid. So they made it very clear to Sato that we need the company gone, and we think that we should just dump it on Sammy. Now, we don't know all the ins and outs of what happened next, and we talked about the Summon Our Dreams of Sega episode, but we don't know all that happened next. We can only speculate a bit. At some point in February 2003, it looked like there was a done deal, essentially, between Sammy and Sega, that they had agreed to a deal in principle. There was a sudden offer from Namco to buy the business instead. I can only speculate at this point, but I do know, because I've talked to people that were at Sega Enterprises USA at the time, not Sega of America, the arcade arm, not the home console arm. I do know that there were a lot of people in Sega that were very upset with the idea of being sold to Sammy. And in fact, a lot of people quit after they were sold to Sammy. I was told that on the American side at Sega Enterprises USA, it felt to them like when Kmart bought Sears. This once great titan of the industry being bought by this cheap, tawdry business. Kmart is in discount stores. Sears was the king of department stores. Kmart was this little, dirty discount store where the poor people shop. It's not my view. I'm just saying that's how a proud Sears executive could kind of see being bought out by Kmart. Sears made houses. Yes. Kmart just has a blue light bulb. (laughs) Right, exactly. A lot of people at Sega felt the same way about Sammy, because uh, Sammy was a very successful company, but Sega helped build the coin-op industry in Japan. They built incredible experiences, not just games, but experiences like OutRun and Space Harrier and their R360 game where you spun around and the rides and did all of this phenomenal stuff. And Sammy made these pachinko machines used for gray market gambling. With the way things turned out, I wouldn't be surprised if Sato, and this is speculation, I want to be very clear this is speculation, I wouldn't be surprised if Sato worked behind the scenes to try to get a different offer than Sammy. I think the people at Sega did not want to sell to Sammy, but the CSK people wanted to see it done. When the Namco offer came across and Sato did not immediately say no to it, 
Sammy and Satomi were furious. They eventually called off the deal. Then Namco, because they got impatient waiting on Sega to choose between these suitors and make a decision, right afterwards also called off the deal, which was the end of Hideki Sato's tenure as president of Sega, because the company still wasn't doing super great and everything had just been botched. The deal that the overlords at CSK wanted did not come to pass. Sato was replaced with Hisao Gucci. Just because the Sammy deal failed didn't mean that CSK didn't want out like yesterday. CSK still owned over 20% of the stock of Sega. So at that point, CSK was basically just like, okay, fine, we can't make you, Sega, sell yourself to Sammy, because it's a publicly traded company. You know, we can't force you to do this, but we own 20% of the stock, and we can dispose of our own stock as we bloody well see fit. So then in late 2003, they sold all of their shares of Sega to Sammy Corporation. If we can't sell you, we're just going to wash our hands of you. Then once Satome had that 20 plus percent share of Sega, once Sammy did, then they leveraged that in the next year to come back around and complete a purchase of the remainder of Sega, and then, of course, formed Sega Sammy with Sega as a wholly owned subsidiary. So that entire situation, once again, because this is our episode on the relationship between Sega and CSK, that entire relationship, again, was driven by CSK. It is only because of CSK's desires and the new management of CSK's desire to be out of this business that they were forced into kind of a shotgun wedding with Sammy. And it, it seems to me, and I don't have proof of this, but it seems to me they really did try to resist. CSK, meanwhile, did its pivot. It continued in information services, but, you know, was pivoting more into this call center stuff, this financial sector stuff, other things of that nature, until it had a rough turn in the 2000s, later in the 2000s, with its real estate investment business, which caused heavy losses. Then in April 2011, they were bought by Sumitomo Corporation. Then in October 2011, they had their own company, Sumitomo Computer System Corporation, absorb CSK Corporation. Sumitomo Computer System was a surviving entity in this to create what they then called SCSK Corporation. Since CSK was not the surviving entity in that merger, it was absorbed. That marks the end of the company that Isao Okawa founded back in 1968. What is there to kind of sum up about this relationship between Sega and CSK, the point of these last two episodes? I think Sega history is probably a little different without Okawa's intervention. I think it was Okawa that was pushing them in this bold new direction at the end, I'm not sure what would have happened if they had tried to do something more traditional than the Dreamcast that they did. At that point, their other problems, which were not caused by CSK, were probably too big to overcome anyway. I don't know that Okawa really caused much in the way of greater ruin than the company was already about to experience. But there's no doubt that Okawa was a visionary. Okawa saw a future very similar to the one that we have now where information services, where network services, where 
cloud computing, where all of these things form the backbone of many parts of society, where network infrastructure and network companies play a big role in our daily lives. And I do think that from the moment he took over Sega in 1984 to the moment he died in 2001, he was to one degree or another trying to get CSK Corporation and Sega into that future, and that those dreams of his did shape the later years of Sega to some degree. And and certainly the fact that there was Sammy Corporation today happened because of his successors wanting to get out of the business as quickly and cleanly for them as possible. I hope in these couple of episodes, it's given a new understanding and a new context for Sega Enterprises and the ways, small and large, that its parent company influenced its future development. It would have been really interesting to see if Okawa could have lived another decade or two and see if he could actually pull it off. There's a lot of question there because he laid the groundwork. He started the rocky road. And I imagine back when he was hiring a whole bunch of people in a recession, that was a rocky road before it finally paid off. Mm -hmm. If he was allowed or lived long enough to continue on for another decade or two, I really wonder if he would have succeeded in a way. Yeah, it's impossible to say. I mean, obviously, counterfactuals are impossible. It feels like there were pretty great headwinds. He was not a young man. He was 74 when he died. Even if he hadn't died, he would have only had so many more years of energy or health to keep moving the company forward. It is an interesting what might have been. I mean, counterfactuals can be fun, too, and it's always interesting to wonder if he could have carried through with some of his ideas for Sagan, for CSK, where he could have come. Because he was right about a lot of things, but... In the end, I don't know that the companies that he controlled really had the resources they needed to carry out this vision, and I really am not so sure that Sega had the resources to carry out this vision, especially after all of the difficulties they experienced in the mid-90s. Either way, there's, there's no doubting that Okawa exerted a big influence on Sega, especially in its very last years as a hardware manufacturer. Well, I know you've been doing more research, so the question is, in our next episode, which one of your anodes of research in your great library of Alexandria <laughs> do we pull the book out or the ancient scroll and read from it to tell the people? Well, you know, back in the day, we used to do a lot of histories of computer game companies. A lot of histories. And it feels like it's been a while since we've done a history of a computer game company. It's been a long gap for us in that area. There are so many left to do, too. So I thought we might do a computer game company, and in this case specifically, the company Microprose. How the heck did we not cover Microprose to this point? You and I both like Master of Orion. How? 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 There's a lot of subjects out there, Jeffrey. We've covered Sid Meier, of course, but covering Sid Meier is different from covering the company where he did much of his greatest work. Sort of the same contrast of Will Wright and Maxis. Exactly. I think it's time to take a look at Microprose, the highs and lows that the company experienced uh, often in rapid succession in the uh, 1980s and early 1990s, and their great character of a CEO whom I have had the pleasure of interviewing, one Mr. Wild Bill Steely. Oh, I remember you telling me about those interviews. (laughs) Okay, kids, you're in for a wild ride with this one. Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, 
They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. You can also help by getting the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a creative attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. And I got this one early for once. And it's all thanks to the cat. Say hi, cat. Cat? Cat? No, no, no. Ow! Cat!